0: Ah, hello. So good to see you again. Welcome back to the Gallery of Curiosities. I remain, as always, your humble host, Osgood. Back to the Basewalker I see. It seems the chorus is in the mood for some crime. Here, I thought they would have brought out the theremin now that it's October. No, eh? Hmm, crime it is, then. We shall have a noir this evening. You know, I normally have my chorus stay behind the curtain. The sight of them tends to unsettle people. I suppose they do not look as one might expect if you had only ever heard them. Or perhaps it is the manner in which they play each other. I rather like the way they follow me around when no one is watching. At least then I know someone is listening before we begin for this evening an announcement if you don't mind we shall be open for submissions from the 7th to the 14th of october 2020 but listen carefully we will only be reading manuscripts which are related to fairy tales and by that i mean grim very grim and fractured if you please For more information on how to submit, visit gallerycurious.com. The grimmer the better if I didn't make myself clear. This evening's exhibit comes to us from Ms. M. A. Smith, who writes from Gloucestershire, where she lives with her family. Her fiction has appeared in magazines including Mythic, Gathering Storm, and Dark Moon Digest and her novella Severance was published by Fantasia Divinity. Find out more at MASmithwriting dot com The Pinch
1: by MA Smith. An old crook once told me, your average man on the street was becoming so suspicious, that if you tried to lift his wallet, you'd as soon get a mousetrap snap shut around your hand, as score a fat wad of cash. He didn't stop me wanting to try, though, and Charlie the Barley knew all the tricks. He was an old-school grifter, and took great pride in imparting his trade to a humble apprentice, such as I was then. His area of expertise was agricultural theft, but he'd been a pickpocket since his childhood days and there was, to my knowledge, none better on the Jubilee Line. Seeing him at work among the pigeons as they barged and bulged on and off the trains was some sort of poetry in motion. I couldn't get enough of it. And I was a fast learner. Time came that I was able to leave the Barley's tutelage and make a path for myself on the London streets. I had a day job, of course. Most of us do. You'd be surprised at how respectable we look, how much like you. But I had plenty of opportunity to ply my trade on busy morning commutes or after work as queues gathered outside theatres and galleries and pigeons of culture were eager to flash around their baubles. I invested most of my earnings. There was this guy I knew through the barley called Mickey who converted jewellery or what have you into cash for a not unsubstantial cut. The deal with this was I had to get to him within two hours of the lift. Now you could ask, quite reasonably, how this fellow would possibly be any the wiser if I turned up with the goods half an hour late, a week late, five minutes late. You move in my circles though, you find out sharpish that these sort of folks do know. And if you doubt it, get coy about it try to push your luck the one time you may find that your life alters from that point on. Maybe you start suspecting that someone's shadowing your steps as you mosey down the edgeware road. You'll find your apartment door open one evening when you know you locked it in the morning. Perhaps the next day you don't show up for your day job at all. And maybe the next week there's a new grifter working your patch. One that knows to get to the Barley's man within two hours of a lift. a summer came, when though, I was considering calling time on the city. I put away nearly enough in ready money to begin thinking about taking up the sort of rural life that involves shotguns and trips to muddy, floored, overheated pubs, serving real ale and pork scratchings that still have bristly little hairs attached to their rinds. I talked to my broker, and calculated that one more season should do it, saving at the rate I'd been. I'd maybe have to forego some of my more expensive tastes for a month or so, but I thought I, and a number of Soho's more charming residents, could live with that. You could say I upped production, and as autumn blew in, skittering leaves along Tower Bridge like the dried and brittle bones of dead mice, I found myself staying on the streets later covering patches I hadn't worked for years. A smoky dusk was lingering over the city that evening that I picked the pocket of the woman wearing the red hat in a side street off Piccadilly Circus. She was looking at the menu stuck to the window of the restaurant she stood outside of. She wore a long black coat, and above its rounded collar slithered a red tattoo that coiled around her neck to disappear beneath her hat. Its inky scales pulsed with her breath, a sinuous and intimate movement that troubled me. I sensed promise, though, so tugged my own hat a little lower, adjusted my scarf, and strolled slowly over to stand a few paces away from her, cupping my hands to the glass as I pretended to look into the restaurant. After a few seconds, I spun away from the window, feigning a sudden remembrance, mocked up her stumble, and collided gently with the woman. She instinctively moved both arms up slightly and out as her centre of gravity shifted. I put her hand on her arm to apologetically steady her while my other hand slipped unnoticed into her coat pocket and lifted out what felt like a purse and a piece of jewellery. We both muttered quiet exclamations of apology and parted. Done. Oldest trick in the book. I rounded the corner without hurrying and walked to the tube station. I discreetly looked over what I'd hauled while I sat on the train, waiting for the Hammersmith stop to see Mickey about converting various bits and pieces from the evening's work. The red-hatted woman's purse was a nondescript affair with perhaps a fiver in change inside. Uh, Maybe read the pigeon wrong. Happens sometimes. What I'd taken for jewelry turned out to be a strangely shaped coin. It was like no coin I'd seen before, though. Made of steel or iron, it was three-sided, with a pattern of spiralling numbers on one face and a Medusa-type figure on the other. The figure's face was worn almost completely away. It weighed much less than it looked like it should. I tucked the coin away and swung off the train as it slowed to a halt. Tugging on my gloves, I noticed a fine, reddish powder on my fingers. I stopped, and the human tide parted messily around me, surging into the street and dispersing into the London suburbs like dust. I pulled the coin back out and saw what I'd missed before. The same red-tinged powder clung to its three sides, impacted deeply into the metal's tiny nicks and crevices. It was full dark by then and a bitter rain flickered in the cool orange glow of the sodium lights outside. I pushed the coin into my pocket, brushed my hands hard on my trousers, and hurried through the emptying streets to this grimy little lane between a newsagent's and an office Not a place that shouted, criminal underbelly of London. Well, one wouldn't want to attract the wrong sort of notice. I strolled into Mickey's office, feeling not quite as chipper as I maybe appeared. We conducted a number of transactions around items I'd scored earlier that evening, although, you understand, well within the two-hour window. And then I gave him the three-sided coin, fully ready for disparagement and hoping I could at least winkle a few quid out of him to compensate for the tube fare. Instead of doing either or both of these things, though, the Barley's man slipped into a mysterious little back room that I'd never been given the entry of. I could only make out the vaguest of murmurings as he conversed with an unknown associate on the phone. When he came out, he was pale, and I noticed, with a not-unsympathetic jolt, how old he'd grown during the years of our business acquaintance. He may have taken me for thousands in cuts, but he wasn't a bad chap. Calling him a lovable rogue would be like calling a medieval Carsons Dungeon a bijou apartment, but he wasn't the worst, by far. Mickey lay a brick of notes on the desk between us. I made it disappear. You best move your business elsewhere, son, he said to me. Making you look bad, Mickey, I returned, a growing unease coiling in my belly and winding a long tail up my gullet. That's right, sweetheart, making me look bad. I hear brightness of place these days. He produced a card from his sleeve, Call this guy when you get there. Tell him my name. With that, the old cudgeon retreated into the back office once more, leaving me bemused, but with the better part of two thousand knicker in my back pocket for that weird little coin with a Medusa on one side. There being little else to do, I set off home to Norfield's, still puzzling, and still with a slightly nauseating sense of disquiet. Opening the door to my apartment, I went straight to the bedroom and lay down fully dressed and shod. my mind racing and my pulse not entirely steady. I was sure that sleep wouldn't pick the lock of my buzzing brain, but I soon found the light of my consciousness dimming to a fine point, until finally it was extinguished altogether and I knew no more. An old crook once told me. You only leave a job half done when either a copper's breathing down your neck or you get a better offer. I wasn't getting any heat from the law and I couldn't see a quick way to reach my cliche little cottage in the country, but to carry on as was. So I decided to commit the whole incident with the coin to the nether regions of my memory and put Mickey's bizarre behavior down to some sort of personal crisis. It was hard to do though, almost impossible especially when every morning I woke to find that same red dust on my fingers, no matter how many times I washed it off. Every single morning it covered my hands like pollen, leaving stains on my sheets and reddish rust around the basin wherein I sluished it away, only for it to reappear again the next day. I wore gloves to bed one night, but discovered, on peeling them off at dawn, the same hateful powder on my skin, beneath the fabric. It was easiest to believe I had developed an unusual skin disorder than consider the alternatives. And so that is what I did, even going so far as to procure a steroidal cream that I applied to my hands each morning after removing the powder from my fingers. In this way, the top part of my brain, the more gullible part, convinced the wiser part underneath that everything was fine. The underneath part knew better though. It always does. The worst was to come. An awful, aching, pinching sensation racked my hands so that sat in the sterile office where I spent my days, I could, at times, barely force my fingers to curl around the ringing telephone. I I began to suspect arthritis as I watched the joints stiffen and solidify like little fossilised corpses. Barely a week after the first presentation of these symptoms, I was working the pigeons pushing off the tube at Green Park. Always a rich fishing ground as excited pigeons of the tourist variety were all glazed over with the thought of Buckingham Palace and all that tosh. In hindsight, it was foolish attempting a lift in the state I was, but there had taken root in my mind a kind of desperation. A weird feeling that perhaps if only I acted as though nothing had changed, Miraculously, nothing would have. It was a clumsy job, even without my mangled hands. The mark felt the jolt before my fingers even came into it and turned, all suspicion and hostility, looking at me with eyes that clocked my every feature. I only caught the cliched, What the? as I melted back into and through the crowd. I, I sprinted on foot to the next tube station and caught the first train that came down the line. And what do you know, I ended up back at Piccadilly Circus where this whole sorry palaver began. That my mind was far from clear is the only excuse I have for my footsteps taking me as if an unseen track from which there was no detaching to the dark little side street where I'd first encountered the woman in the red hat, maybe a fortnight past. If I told you she stood there still, right outside that closed-up restaurant, as if she'd not moved since, you would quite rightly think that my mind had come loose under the pressure of my double existence, and maybe doubt the credibility of this whole tale. And maybe you'd be right. Maybe I'm right now spinning my wheels in an institution somewhere, rattling onto an orderly about nicking wallets, women with weird tattoos, and an infinite red powder that covered the skin of my hands like an obscene dust. Whatever the truth of it, I saw that woman standing there in the grey light, that fleshy snake tight to her neck and flashing now dull ochre, now silver to the beat of her pulse. I came nearer. My hands shook inside my pockets, and I felt the familiar ache intensify so that it was like a foot standing on each, grinding the small bones beneath the skin and pulling nauseatingly at the tendons. She turned her head to look at me, and I saw how the tattooed snake crossed her temple before sliding beneath the fabric of her hat. I I can't explain this next part very clearly. The best I can do is tell you that she began to talk to me, but her speech was in no language I have heard the like of before or since. Guttural, and somehow meaty, animalistic, and that I was able to, in some horrific fashion, understand the sense of it. I realized, too, that up close I couldn't see her face clearly, It seemed to shift and swim and never come completely into focus, as though I was looking at her through spectacles with strong prescription lenses. The essence of what she said was that old chestnut. You have something of mine. I held my hands out in a gesture I hoped would indicate the coin was no longer in my possession. I also brought from my pocket with withered fingers a little pile of notes, and profited. Please. She touched my hands with hers, and the feeling of her skin on mine was so grotesque that I barely suppressed a scream. Before turning away, she gave my fingers a last caress.
0: Him right. I would never carry around an artifact such as that without casting a little insurance on it. This evening's narrator was Mr. Darren Callow, a writer, voice actor, and musician who is based in Hove on the south coast of the United Kingdom, a medium-sized cannon shot from the English Channel mr callow has lent his voice to brighton theater of the air and the two-bit production audio dramas he also finds time to record his own steampunk podcast entitled tales of new albion featuring original comedy material and readings of his sci-fi stories which i must say are most soothing on those nights when one finds it difficult to sleep and I believe that's all the time we have for this evening. I have been wanting to work on some choreography with my chorus, but do come visit us next time at the Gallery of Curiosity. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 Non-Commercial Attribution No Derivatives License. All story copyrights remain with the authors. Our theme song is Ashes, Ashes by Deus Ex Vapora Machina. Other music was by Winnie the Moog and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was produced in October of 2020. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com.